Welcome to the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. This is Trevor, and I am here today with Paul. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm excited to, to talk today, and nice nice morning, ready to go. Oh, you know, I just realized I messed up the opening. I, I wasn't going to do with Paul or in Paul, but something kind of funky like this is Trevor, uh, uh, but for Paul or something like that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get I'll get back on that. I'll, I'll figure. I'll. I'll, yeah. I'll get a list together so that <laughs> oh, I better make sure I have more coffee before I, uh, you start changing it up on me. <laughs> oh, but but we are here today to do something that we're planning on doing on a regular-ish basis. We are thinking that on episodes that end in a five, so this is episode one, two, three, four, five, it would be the same on episode, say, 15, 25, something like that. We're going to take a step back from, you know, our our lists or our general things and just talk about an author that we both like or maybe just one of us likes and is familiar with or maybe it's someone we want to learn about you know we're 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 going to do this highlight of an author and sometimes we're going to have a lot to say that's very knowledgeable other times we're not (laughs) but that's (laughs) That's okay our ethos here is is uh that hopefully uh, allows for that rather than expectations that we're we're professionals we'll and we'll get into that maybe in a little more detail but first paul what have you been reading yeah so i am still making my way through the magic mountain by thomas mann <laughs> really enjoying it it's just it is quite the journey i do feel like you know i'm i'm going up the mountain um but yeah it's, it's fascinating i've really been enjoying it but i've also been balancing it out as i often do with an audiobook that I listen to when I'm, you know, taking a walk or driving around town. And often I've found that um, I really enjoy listening to nonfiction on audiobook. And so I've been listening to Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth by Sarah Smarsh, Smarsh I guess it is. Um, I don't know if you've heard about this one. It's a National Book Award finalist and, you know, it's won a lot of acclaim. Um, it's really fascinating. She's a fifth generation Kansas wheat farmer and, you know, She comes from a long line of kind of teen mothers on her maternal side. You know, there's a lot of poverty in her background. And so it's this really fascinating look. You know, she's very, a very good writer. She's reported for the New York Times and the Guardian. And, you know, she's got plenty of street cred as far as the journalism side of things goes. Um, But it's just a really nice, like, blend of personal narrative with a lot of analysis and cultural commentary. Um, Really good stuff. There's a couple of just quick quotes, you know, just to give you a little taste of it, you know, that just showing how good of a writer she is. She says, you can pay an entire life in labor, it turns out, and have nothing to show for it. Less than nothing even. Debt, injury, abject need. No matter who you are or what you started with, though, your fortunes are not assured. And so it's just this look at like, you know, there's sometimes these stereotypes or this blame that goes towards, you know, poor people. And she examines a lot of that um, from from both a, a cult a cultural and a personal level. And so it's really good. I mean, there's one other quote that actually has really resonated with me and it's tied into a couple of other things I've read and, and listened to recently. And it says for many poor women, there's a violence to merely existing the pregnancies without healthcare, the unchecked harassment while waiting tables, the repetitive physical jobs that can cause back and foot pain. Then there are the men whose violence I'm not convinced is any worse than a middle or upper class man's but whom a woman without economic means would have a harder time escaping. And so it's just, that kind of took me on this. You know how sometimes when you're reading or or watching films, these connections form that you weren't even planning or expecting. And so I've had one of those recently. That quote made me think of it with the books of um, Natalie 
Ledger. I don't know if, if I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing that right. Um, they're really good. It's, I think I might've even t- talked about them briefly on my, what I'm planning to read next, but it's this group of books that are focusing on di- three different women. Um, and I'll talk about those more in a future episode, but that movie Wanda, have you ever seen that movie? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's the kind of the basis of one of those books. And, and that quote about, you know, for many poor women, there's a violence to merely existing. That really reminded me of, of Wanda. And then another movie I watched recently by Agnes Varda called Vagabond about this kind of teenage runaway. And so anyway, it was just one of those things where I didn't plan it, but just listening to that book, right? Yeah. Listening to that book, it kind of just made those connections for me. So it's one of those just really interesting, like um, fascinating things about looking at these women and, and the things they go through and, you know, anyway, so yeah, it's a really good book so far. I, I would highly recommend well, and, and what a great way to kind of open up our eyes to things like that. That I, I, I'm I'm always blown away by things that I grew up not having the first clue about mm-hmm. when it comes to even my sisters, you know, or my wife. Right. You know, the the fears and the things that they, they deal with on a daily basis that to them are very normal, very yeah. reasonable, rational, and that for me just never even crossed my mind, you know not wanting to go outside and walk at night, you know? Yeah. Maybe as a kid, I thought, Oh, there's a boogeyman. Right. But it was never, Oh, there's a man. Right. And, and so just, to, just to, to learn some more of this stuff and that, you know, that opens my eyes, even just what you just, those quotes, this passage that you mm-hmm. read. Yeah. Um, so boy, yeah, yeah, that's great. Real quick. Just what you said, it just reminded me going further on with that last quote. She says, I had dreams in which I killed men who were coming after me. I sometimes imagine such moments in real life, figuring out ways I would fight. And to your point of just like, we're so fortunate, like that we don't have to necessarily think about that just as part of our daily life. And you read a quote like that and it's just always in the backs of her mind, you know, and it's so, yeah, very, Mm -hmm. very good stuff. I would highly recommend it. It's really good. Yeah. Well, what I've been reading has been not very heavy at all. <laughs> I was on the holiday, you know, a week ago, um, as, as I mentioned uh, um, before uh, in, our, in our last episode, and I took with me uh, The Outlaws Scarlet and Brown by Jonathan Stroud. I've talked about him uh, maybe probably every episode <laughs> so far. He's the author of Lockwood and Co. Um, and I did start that with my boys, uh, The Screaming Staircase, the Lockwood nice. and Co. book one. Been loving reading that again. And um, been reading the the new series, The Outlaws Scarlet and Brown. And while the setting is quite different, you know, I love the ghost setting of Lockwood and Co. That's one of the highlights of the book for me. Right. Um, this one's set in kind of a future Britain. Um, something's happened. I don't know exactly what, but London is flooded. It's a lagoon. I mean, the Thames is, you know, big and, it, and it's skyscrapers are, you know, just uh, ruins in a way. I, I still don't know exactly what what's going on. Uh, but I really like the world and it's almost got an old West tinge to it. You know, it's oh, the outlaws Scarlet and Brown and they're, um, she robs a bank at the beginning and, you know, is good with a gun. And, and it's, so it's, it's a lot of fun, but the personalities are there, you know, you've mm-hmm. been listening to the, the, the Lockwood and Co books. And yep. I don't know if you feel the same, but one of my favorite things also about those books are that the personalities, they're just so funny and fun. Yeah, um, you are. know, Lucy, the narrator is it's just got this personality that I, I love and, um, and it's pretty unique fun. It's not just like quippy, um, you know, stuff you'd see in a sitcom or whatever. It's not that right. it's, these are intelligent characters who, um, 
and I think Jonathan Straub is an intelligent writer who conveys that stuff in, in just very intelligent, fun ways. Um, and that's, that's present in the outlaws, Scarlet and Brown as well. So it, it's one that I recommend. Um, uh, but you know, I still think his master work will be the, the Lockwood and co series. Yeah. So. <laughs> is that one that you're reading now? Is that the first of a new series then? And, and it just came yeah. out. Is that right? Yes. So it just came out in, in the UK uh, a, a month or two ago. And that's where I, I had to import it because I think in the U S it comes out in September or October. Oh, okay. That makes By the sense. Time this I haven't heard a bunch of buzz out. Yeah. By the time this goes out, maybe it'll already be out in the U S we're, we're, we're kind of banking up a bunch of episodes. So our timeliness on what we're talking about will be a little bit delayed when it comes to, you know, publishing this episode. Right. Um, in fact, I mean, I was looking at it this morning we're talking about Cormac McCarthy today and, you know, he's old enough that I don't know when he's going to pass on. And I just, uh, you know, he's not, he's still living at the time we were recording this and um, hopefully nothing happens, but I guess yeah, if he does die not. before we publish this, maybe we'll put a little addendum or something like yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I hope he sticks around for, for his own reasons, but also for selfish reasons, which I'll talk about. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then the the thing I've been listening to um, is actually, I, I, so it's been like a Brandon Sanderson month for me, nice. trying to catch up on novellas and various things like that. And I, I started reading or listening to his uh, trilogy of novellas, Legion. I had no idea what these were about, none, but I it was available on my check, you know, a library app. So I downloaded it and they're they're so funny and fun it's a the 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 main character is a man who um he he sees people he's got hallucinations various personalities around him but they're helpful like one of them is super smart about history the other's an actual psychologist and so he's being he's almost being treated by one of his uh, hallucinations (laughs) for his psychosis that Um, seems fine it is fun and it, and and it is pure fun. Um, the the he kind of solves mysteries because he's got, he's a genius. You know, the world sees him as a genius. He sees himself as someone surrounded by very smart hallucinations. He knows they're hallucinations. He doesn't he doesn't think that that they're real. Um, but nevertheless, this is how his life is. You know, these are these are things. So so he has to like when he gets on um, planes to go places, he has to get like four you know, seats, um, and people hate paying for it, but you know, for him, it's like, I know you shouldn't have to, it's ridiculous. These, but but my, you know, my hallucinations, if if we don't get them this, they will, you know, you don't want to know what happens. (laughs) And he, he's such a good storyteller in general, Brandon Sanderson, um, that I think he just does a, it's a, it's fun. He knows how to pull the fun out of this idea. Um, and there are little mysteries for him to solve, and so far, none of them have been like the main point of the book. They've been interesting, uh, sci-fi-ish kind of mysteries, um, but way beside the point for for me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think they developed those very much. But it's all about this character walking around, um, you know, dealing with dealing with these friends and aspects of himself that just have fun personalities too. One of them even um, has hallucinations of someone else <laughs> that oh, he <wow>. can't see. <laughs> it's like so, nesting dolls of hallucination. It's, it's pretty fun and done in a way that's pretty soft. Like it's not, uh, it, it's far from uh, hard sci-fi or dark or anything mm-hmm. like that. But even just the storytelling, the, the humor is done in a soft way. 
uh, which I think is pretty admirable to be able to, to pull it off. In, yeah, in a, that's in hard a fun to do. Way. Yeah, <clears throat> well, that sounds really good. So, so that's what I, yeah, very light stuff on my table uh, this week. Well, it is uh, summer. But fun. I, I hope I'm not developing a reputation for being like the... Uh, the yeah, dark I mean, and the, the magic mountain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think normally in my life, I'm the I'm the one who does that. Maybe maybe this podcast is making me be like, you know, what? I'm going to lean into this uh, lightness and have yeah. Paul. I'm going to I'm going to let Paul be the that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Pass on the burden. No, I'll have to I'll have to keep an eye on that. Maybe I'll uh, have to read some David Sedaris or something soon. Well, Paul, let's take a quick little break. We have set up a Patreon as many people do, (laughs) a place where we can get help and get donations and subscriptions and also give back a little bit. Over there right now, we have set up a few tiers. We have a $1 tier just because it really does make a difference. Every little bit does go to help pay for the costs of the of the show as well as the costs of the blog and hosting fees and things like that and so yeah a dollar really does make a difference so the dollar one is qt84 i don't know it's just a a dollar you don't have to pay you know a thousand q84 dollars whatever that would be it's a dollar a month and then the life of pi is three dollars and 14 cents a month we also have slaughterhouse five which is five dollars a month as well as 100 Years of Solitude, which is $10 a month, not 100 But anyway, I thought that might be fun. Maybe it's a little bit too cutesy. I don't know. No way, I love it. <laughs> but we already have some patrons, and I wanted to take a minute to thank them right here. Some of these have been supporting me for a few years now. A few others are brand new, thanks to us booting up the podcast. We have uh, Laura Brown, William Check. David Blakesley, partner in crime on another site. <laughs> Margaret Hutton, Wendy Whitten, Dorian Stuber, who uh, probably is responsible for a lot of our book purchases. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Sharon Kiroz, and then uh, some brand new patrons. Uh, thank you very much, Padma, and to Andrew Hudson. I think we know Andrew from other sites too, Paul. Yeah. A good friend for, yeah, for a good decade friend. or so. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for your support. Every single patron, regardless of your tier, you have a subscription feed, an RSS feed that you can use to listen to the podcast. You're kind of part of the Mooks and the Gripes family. And what that does is it gives you access to our episodes early. They're fully edited. You just get them a little early where our episodes come out on Thursdays. I've set that up right now so that people who are on the Patreon get them on Tuesdays. So there's that little bonus. I've also started that out. The very first episode there is a little bonus episode, something on Anita Bruckner that I did a few years ago, actually. But we are planning on other bonus episodes, and we'll probably figure out various rewards for various tiers. So we are we are doing bonus episodes, and uh, just so everybody here, this this will always be free, and we're not we're not changing our plans for what we release on the regular podcast feed. We're not moving over to Patreon or anything like that but we kind of feel like people who are supporting us there should get a little something back from us and so these are bonus episodes things we would not record otherwise (laughs) but for that and so we're figuring out some some ways to go about that something that'll be fun and hopefully worthwhile but thank you again so much everybody now we'll get back to the regular show We are about to talk about 
one of the darkest, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> right. Dark, some of the darkest books I've ever read. And the, and an, the author who put them together in, in Cormac McCarthy. Um, and so I guess really quick, before we get into Mr. McCarthy, let's, <clears throat> let's talk about our thoughts for these author episodes. You know, we both put together lists of authors we'd like to discuss um, individually. Like I have my list of here's ones Trevor wants to discuss. You put yours. Mm-hmm. And then ones that we had in common, we threw into another list to say, hey, we both can talk about these. But we're not necessarily always going to do that. There may be an author that, that I want to hear you talk about because I don't know them. But you you put them on your list, and I would like to hear more about them. And so we may do some of those, yeah. um, and vice versa. And likewise, some of the authors we both want to talk about, it doesn't mean we're scholars in their works or in their life. Um, you know, we've probably read up on them. I've been reading McCarthy for, you know, decades, and mm-hmm. um, it's... I know a little bit about his life. I've listened to interviews by him. I've, um, I haven't read all of his novels though, you know, and I don't feel like I, I want this to be a podcast where I feel like I have had to have done that in order to get on here and talk. Now I know some people are going to be like, Whoa, what, where do these guys get off? And it's like, well, you know, we're having a conversation. We, 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 we're hoping that the conversation is fun and invigorating and, and yeah, not stupid. You know, I don't want to come off as a complete ignorant, you know, person that, that right. has no business talking about anything whatsoever. Uh, you can leave that but, part to me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and, and, but I want to be able to just have fun conversation. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think you and I are doing this. It's like Twitter um, up a level, you know, exactly. I, I've always enjoyed talking with you about books online and this gives us a chance to do that. And hopefully some people enjoy those conversations um, without getting frustrated that, you know, if they, if they downloaded this episode, cause it said, you know, Cormac McCarthy in the title, just don't expect this to be the, the Cormac McCarthy, you know, uh, cliff notes or right definitive or like that, study you know? yeah exactly. not only that we don't have time to to do that today or in our general life you know and so but but we still want the ability to just have hopefully some fun conversations i don't know do you have any thoughts on that or things you want to add no i agree i mean it's kind of that whole like i don't want to sound corny but i really do think of reading and, and kind of my reading life as a journey and there are mm-hmm. plenty of places where you know i feel like i know pretty well a certain author or a certain book even then I wouldn't call myself an expert on anything, but, mm-hmm. um, but there more and more what I enjoy is just you're partway through a journey with a certain author, or you're just starting and you don't know anything and you hear about it on Twitter or through a friend. Uh-huh. And to it's me, fun a to lot share of, that enthusiasm. Exactly. And that's kind of what I love. It's that whole idea of like, when people ask you, have you, have you really read every book on your shelf? Like, no way, not even close. And kind of what we talked about in that first episode, like that's part of the excitement of it. Like I have all that stuff to look forward to. And that's exactly how I approach something like this. And I might be a little bit not sensitive to this because it's not that, but maybe I'm addressing this on, you know, upfront in, in bigger terms than maybe I need to. But my old podcast, you know, my, my other iteration of the, my podcast, I was trying to talk essay-ish, you know, about mm-hmm. certain authors or, or time periods. And it got a little bit overwhelming to sit down and dig into an author and, and say, okay, I've, I'm going to try and do this in 45 minutes how do I do this in a way that's knowledgeable and that doesn't leave a bunch of obvious gaps? And that was tough to prepare those episodes, but also very frustrating when afterwards you get people like, why didn't you talk about this book? You right, know, and right, it's like, right. 
uh, wasn't ever my objective. Sometimes their criticism, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like anything's ever quite, you know, uh, exhaustive. And I, and that's okay. You know, we're yeah, not trying absolutely. to be. No, that makes so, sense. And I mean, I would hope maybe if, if listeners hear this and, you know, I would love to just start a conversation, you know, if there's stuff not necessarily that we didn't point out, but just something cool, you know, or a favorite book you have. I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons that I enjoy doing stuff like this and talking to people on Twitter is we mm-hmm. could read the same book and come to completely different c- conclusions. Like we could, you know, there might be a favorite book that I have not read of, of one of these authors that somebody mm-hmm. helps me discover. So yeah, absolutely. The yeah. obvious choice, Paul, exactly. why have you not ever read that? One? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I'm excited because I do know both of us have, are pretty well versed in McCarthy's works mm-hmm. um, and have been doing that for a while. And I, we, we've probably over even the last, you know, several years brought them up a few times together. I'm, I'm oh, just sure. guessing, you know, throwing yeah, out there. Absolutely. Um, but what, uh, you know, you were the, we kind of threw a few names out there and you were the one who said, let's talk McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Um, give me some background of you and you and Cormac McCarthy. Me and Cormac. Um, well, I mean, I'm a huge fan. First of all, that probably goes without saying, I think he's just a fantastic writer. One of the things that I love about him is that he just goes for it. Like he really shoots for the moon, <laughs> you know, more and more. I, I'm, appreciating authors who just, you know, I mean, it's easy to go safe and somebody who just goes all in to me, like, even Mm -hmm. if it doesn't always work, I really respect that. So you hear the comparisons to Faulkner, to Melville, you know, that old Testament style that he has in some of his books. And you get him mocked in the Royal Tenenbaums with, you know, the friskalating dusk light. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, that's the thing is like, there's some really bad versions of this out there and I've read some of them. And I think (laughs) since he started writing and got popular and probably even before that, there are people who go for this kind of thing and fail miserably. Um, So when it's bad, it's really bad. And I think that's actually a testament to just how talented he really is, Um, you know, just to be able to pull this off. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that's kind of my general um, thoughts on him. I have, I can get into it a little bit, but one of my favorite reading memories um, we've talked about, you know, sometimes there's those moments that kind of just get stuck in time where you always remember them. And when our youngest son was born, he had thrush. And so he could not sleep on his own. And so every night my wife and I would take turns sleeping on the couch and he would sleep on our chests. And I remember reading no country for old men right after it came out with him laying on my (laughs) chest and like 3am and I'm just like tearing through this book. And it was a very, I have wonderful memories of it, but it was looking back. It's kind of funny because it's such a, in some ways, brutal and like crime driven novel. And then you have this sweet little newborn sitting on your chest. It was one of those like, but very (laughs) strong. What did I bring you into? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. What have I done? No, but it was just one of those like where I I do have some very strong memories of reading his books over the years. And you can always tell that's an author that you've connected with when you can remember specific books, specific reading experiences with them. And I definitely have that, you know, with, with McCarthy. How about you? Well, I, I have, a, I remember where I was when I read um, <clears throat> No Country for Old Men mm-hmm. as well. I, we were uh, visiting back home. I was back East um, living in New Jersey and my wife and I had come back to, to the West to see family and I'd packed, packed it with me. It had just come out and, I'm sure family members were like, where's Trevor, you know, <laughs> at least for an hour or two. Cause that was a pretty fast read. I remember just zipping through that and, and really, really um, enjoyed no country for old men. Mm-hmm. I, 
I don't remember which one I started with. I probably could figure it out, but um, No Country for Old Men was definitely one of the first Cormac McCarthy books that I'd read. Yeah. Um, so that came out in 2005. I mean, it's it's late in his career. Uh, yeah. It's the second to last book we have of him. And But I, I read that one, and I know that I read all the pretty horses around the same time, but I don't remember which one I read first. Yeah. And then I went back and read as much as I wanted to at the time. Mm-hmm. So let, let me kind of, uh, I see McCarthy kind of having two parts of his career. He's got his first five books and then his last five books. And then this unpublished one that's been out there for, you know, a long time. Years, yeah. I don't know if we're going to get this, the passenger, but you know, he, he's got his first really dark books and it kind of ends with blood Meridian in 1985. That's his first, that's his fifth book. Mm-hmm. And then he goes into this trilogy with all the pretty horses and the crossing and the cities of the plain. And then we get no country for old men, kind of probably some pretty massive success with the road the next year. Yeah. And then, you know, the Coen brothers adapt no country for old men. And uh, really we haven't seen too much from him since there is, he did do the, the screenplay for the counselor. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I ever read by him, as far as, you know, sequential order would be a, an excerpt of that, that was published in the New Yorker, in right. 2012 or 2013 or something like that. Um, I never did see the movie. Um, didn't, didn't, I, I did. That yeah. Much, I, I didn't love it, but then I've heard some people rave about it since then. It's one of those things where even though I didn't love it now, I'm like, I have those moments where I'm like, maybe I missed something. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I read all of the, um, the, these books around, you know, the same several year period in the mid 2005, six, seven, eight, nine, probably mm-hmm. around there is when I read everything that I've ever read by McCarthy. I have some blind spots. I said, I haven't read everything by him. Yeah. I, I still haven't read Sutri, you know, it's his mm. fourth book and it's a big one. It's, it's a good kind one. of it's on a great my list. Um, and then I've not read the second two books in the border trilogy, the crossing and cities of the plain. Mm. Um, I really liked all the pretty horses, but for some reason, those books, and I think you've told me that you disagree with this. And so, you know, I, I, I feel that you're right. But for some reason, those two books felt like, I felt like people were like, eh, you, you know, he tried, he tried to keep the story going that he really didn't need to. Yeah. And so I was very satisfied with all the pretty horses and never did read those two, but that's it. I've read all the others I've read. Mm-hmm. So I've read seven of his 10 and I, I'm sure someday, you know, should I live long enough, I will read the rest of them. It's not, right. It's, I kind of want to read everything he wrote, but not feeling the pressure to do it today. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, definitely. I think I'm somewhere in the same rough boat as you as far as number. I think I might have read eight of the ten, actually. Um, I don't think I've read The Orchard Keeper or Child of God, but I, I believe I've read everything else that he's written. And um, yeah, Sutri, I mean, we can talk about that one, but I think that's definitely one you should read. It's it's got I feel plenty. like it's the most important one that I've missed. Yeah, I would say so based on what you said. I mean, I love the whole Border Trilogy. So personally, I think The Crossing and Cities of the Plain. I have them as a big like omnibus edition that Is I that got. Is that the Everyman? No, oh, no not, not the Everyman. I've been tempted to get that one too, but it's like, I think I got it. I don't know. I don't remember how I got it, but um, it's. I think it came out of the UK. And so it's like, huh. I'm showing it to Trevor on the screen now. It's not one that I see come come very often, the, the edition that I have. So anyway, I, I've, I think when I read them, I just read it straight through as if it was one giant novel. Hmm. And so to me, I guess I probably, I'm sure I noticed and delineated them within the trilogy, but I kind of read it as one big book. And so I 
I don't know. I mean, it, I need to read them again, but I, I remember them as probably one of my very favorites as a, as a collective whole of his. Huh. Um, but yeah, Sutri, you know, I would say you definitely should pick that one up. I have it listed. Like I just kind of jotted down, like my favorites were Border Trilogy, Blood Meridian, Sutri, and The Road. Um, if I had to rank four, I mean, No Country for Old Men, I really like, but I don't know that it's, it's a different type of novel. It feels more like a thriller, which is not a bad thing by any means. It made for a fantastic movie. I love oh, the Coen Brothers movie. I do and, too. and it's a very faithful adaptation, but, um, uh, but yeah, it's quite different from anything else he he's ever written. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, I was going to say one of the things that I, really like about McCarthy is I think I've talked about Stephen King, like how fascinating it is to me that as he was beginning his writing career, he had these young children and it's like that starving artist thing, but like, you know, sneaking off into the utility closet and putting a board on his lap and sitting there and typing away, you know, in the middle of the night to get these stories out. And those types of authors who have really worked for it, that fascinates me. And so there's a story that I'd seen about, um, McCarthy, like when he and his first wife got married, they purchased this dairy barn. McCarthy renovated it, doing all the stonework and everything by himself. And then, you know, according to his wife, they lived in total poverty. They were bathing in a lake Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And um, so while living in this barn, he wrote their next, you know, his next book and his next book and his next book. And there's a quote from him. I don't have it in front of me now, but it's basically like he would make enough money to buy like the next pot of beans, basically. And just this idea of like sticking with it and like doing what he has to do, you know, to keep paying the bills, but like that passion, you know, working so hard to just, oh, there it is. It said, um, he would tell them that everything he had to say was there on the page. So he would, so we would eat beans for another week. And I just kind of like that quote of just like, you know, putting the beans on the table for another week and kind of just working in the background. So anyway, that's like one of the fascinating things about him is like, now he's viewed as like this legend, but just looking back, like, how hard he worked to get there. I, I think that's fascinating. Yeah. His, his books didn't seem to make him a ton of money. It, it's really been late in life that he found that kind of fame and success. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yes, he was publishing and, and he got, you know, real publishers, uh, big publishers for, for these books. Um, even the first ones that are exceptional, like I say, just very, very dark to me um, yeah. and very strange, but they didn't necessarily become bestsellers. Um well, how should we do this? Do you, do you want to go through his his uh, books in kind of a bit of an order and just kind of see where we, where, where that takes us? Yeah. Um, so I know. You, so you haven't read The Orchard Keeper. That's his debut novel, published in 1965, and I did read it and thought, yeah, okay, I'm glad I you know it was part of an an effort to be complete and to read where he came from and all of that. But I would say that anyone who doesn't want to do that, you can definitely skip The Orchard Keeper. Um, I reviewed it on my site, so I'll put some of that in the show notes. But it did win an award. And it just to be, you know, to, to start drawing the comparisons right now, it won the 1966 William Falker, Faulkner Foundation Award oh, <laughs> for, a notable, for a notable first novel. So it's not like this was the, the best, you know, novel of the year. It was there for the first novel. It was published by Random House. <clears throat> and it's... It does still have these biblical themes and, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of darkness and all of that. But it's very, to, to my memory, quite, I had a hard time following it all. 
and mm-hmm. and keep keeping track of what was going on. Now that's not unique to this book when it comes to McCarthy's work. We'll get to Blood Meridian, um, but this one right. didn't make me feel like I needed to do, put in the work either. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. Blood Meridian, I tried that. We'll get there in a few minutes, but I tried that one several times before I finally said, "Okay, I'm buckling in and doing this." Um, and put in the work. The Orchard Keeper, I never felt like I needed to go back and reread big swaths of it in order to, you know, catch up. Um, because it did did still feel a little bit more like a um, a, a curiosity, you know, yeah. a, a, an important thing, but not not where we get with his second book, um, Outer Dark, mm-hmm. a few years later. So, um, yeah, I think someday you should read it. Because you're almost done with this stuff, why not? Right, right, no, for sure. But, <laughs> but what you just described is kind of the impression I've got, and I have a friend who is really, um, you know, he's been into McCarthy forever, he's from the South, and that's kind of the impression that he gave me as well, is like, anything he writes, especially if you're a fan, you should read, of course, mm-hmm. but it's not one, like, if you're making a list of priorities, it, that one may not be one of the top tier. Tough to know those, though, right? You don't, It's not like you want a, this to be your last McCarthy I know. book. I struggle with that all the time <laughs> with, with any author. It's like often you're drawn, like you hear somebody raving about their masterpiece and you go in and if that's an author, you think you're going to end up reading their whole canon. Should I start like low and work my way up or do I just like go with the big one? And then everything after that is like, it wasn't as good, you know? <laughs> well, so you've got a couple more um, with child of God as well. Uh, I would I would maybe save that one for the end if you decide to to venture out and finish this just to to end on a on a with a with a bang or a bat to the face I guess might be a better <laughs> uh, way to put it but but outer dark uh, how did this one approach you Yeah, it's funny I I don't know that I can actually it's been a while since I've read it and so I don't know that I have I, I what I remember about it is that it's very dark and it again very it has dark. it has that that language that fascinating like i don't even know how to describe it but it just washes over you and it's it's odd and it's weird and it's old-fashioned like it's definitely where he he didn't work his way into that style like slowly and cautiously he no no he went for it that's where he started yep (laughs) yeah and i remember it's just you know it's got a lot of like you know there's a lot of darkness and fear and like that kind of you know strange yeah guilt and kind of like it's a yeah. It just for listeners. So it's a book kind of about incest and a child of incest. Yeah. And and not just that that that's that's not what we mean when we say dark. The the darkness is the guilt that leads like the 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 dad brother to take the child and and abandon it out in the woods expecting it to die. He just can't mm-hmm. can't live with the idea that um there would be evidence of his sins. Um, that doesn't work out quite the way he thinks it will, but boy, that's the way the book opens. And it's one of the, actually one of the more captivating, you know, kind of terribly captivating, mm-hmm. um, openings I've ever, ever read oh, uh, opening segments. It's it, it, in fact, that starts on a, on a very high note when it comes to just pure storytelling skill and, and really just capturing you. And I don't think the book quite delivers throughout at that same level. Um, but yeah, that it's, it's got, and McCarthy doesn't doesn't hold back on the like he he doesn't think oh maybe a kid's going to read this uh, right <laughs> he, no he uh, he goes for for the thoughts and things that you're like well let's leave those out of the book and just let people recognize them on the periphery no he goes into it mm-hmm. um, yeah and, absolutely and 
So, in fact, I, I read Outer Dark, and at the, about the same time, I read Child of God, um, which is one of the ones you haven't read. Mm-hmm. I haven't read that one. What do you know about this one? <laughs> you know, to be honest, I don't know. By reputation. Yeah, I think right, rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly, I've kind of lumped those first three together to some degree. Uh-huh. Not necessarily by content or or topic, but just, I don't know, like not minor works, but just where he was still finding his style and experimenting. Like we said, it's not like he, I mean, he jumped right in and, and from the very beginning, he was very confident and a very talented writer. But I don't really know very much about this one, to be honest with you. All right. Well, so I I, I, I couple these two together, not the first one. The Orchard Keeper, I would put kind of as its own you know mm-hmm. debut novel kind of thing. But um, Outer Dark and then Child of God are really two of the darkest things I've ever read and mm-hmm. let myself get into the minds of these characters. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a good book and it's, it's strong, but it's topic is so disturbing. It, it, I'll just, maybe I'll just leave it at that. If you don't know too much about it, I'll, maybe I'll just leave it at that. But this is to me, the darkest of McCarthy's um, uh, work. Oh, wow. And that goes into things like what you see in the road, um, things you see in uh, Blood Meridian. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a dark psychology of yeah. a very perverse person that um, is described as a child of God, much like yourself, perhaps. Mm. And Well, that's uh, saying a lot, if, if that's one of the darkest, because... <laughs> I would say the darkest. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go there. I'll, I'll just say the okay. the darkest and um, um, dealing with themes and, and things that we, we, we I've, I've never read a book like it um, ever. Yeah. The, the, so Outer Dark and Child of God just stand out as as like dang near unpublishable hmm. um, books that nevertheless are. And I'm glad they are. And I'm glad I read them yeah. because they're, you know, he's not doing it for kicks. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really kind of examining ugliness in this world. And I think that that's one theme that he goes in and, you know, goes to again and again and again in his books is brutality, violence, um, ugliness, exploitation, um, s- psychologically perverse people mm-hmm. um, having their way in in the world at large, both in the past, you know, in, in some, you know, he's kind of... Westerns and, and all of that, you know, we'd get into with all the pretty horses. Um, but also in the present with things like no country for old men mm-hmm. or in the future with the road. I mean, he, I, his perspective on, on violence and all of this seems to be, um, it's just there. Right. You know? Well, I think the fascinating thing about all that too, is, I mean, for example, we can talk about blood Meridian in a minute, but that one is based on a true story. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I mean, I like, or I don't know if I like it, but I appreciate that. It's like, he's not making this stuff up. Like he is looking at a part of the world and a part of society that maybe a lot of times people feel uncomfortable talking about, but he goes there and he not only goes there, but he like, like you said, he explores the minds of those people in it. He makes it beautiful, which is Mm -hmm. just amazing that you could do that. Like some of the most horrific descriptions that he includes are like stunningly beautiful. And that, it's just, that, that's what I mean about in lesser hands, this could have been a disaster, but he pulls it off and not only does that, but writes some of these masterpieces. 
So, so tell me about Sutri, yeah. because I, I do want to read it, and I've been excited. I've even pulled it off a few times to get started. Yeah. Um, but it's so long. It is. That I feel, I, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can handle this much Cormac McCarthy in, in a gulp. <laughs> I mean, one thing I will say is it's still plenty dark, but of all the ones that I've read, it's got the most humor and kind mm. of humanity, I guess is the right way to say it. So you know, in a nutshell, it's a book about, you know, a a man, Sutri, who has basically chosen to kind of forsake this life of um, affluence that he, he was raised in. And so right away, that gets me, I, I'm always drawn to like the people who have this stable, steady life, and they choose for whatever reason to kind of go go a different direction. And so it's pretty fascinating. You know, he was born into this life of privilege with this really, you know, well-known, prominent family. Um, I don't remember the details. It's been a while, but he basically decides to, to get, you know, skip all that. And he goes and lives in this houseboat on the Tennessee River. And so he just lives, you know, with a bunch of outcasts and different people who kind of come in and out of his life. You know, a lot of eccentric characters and just you know, there's criminals and homeless people and all these different people who kind of come in and, you know, pass through his life. So I think one of the reasons that I decided to pick this one up is I really, I don't know if you ever followed Roger Ebert very much when he used to write his blog, but like when he was going through his illness and even before that, you know, he was such a good writer and he loved Sutri. It was his favorite Cormac McCarthy book and he would just rave about it. So I don't know if you remember after he had all the cancer and the surgery and he lost his voice and he went through a long period where he was pretty depressed and he wasn't watching any any films or anything like that. And he wrote um, this piece about Sutri and he says, curiously, my love of reading finally returned after I picked up Cormac McCarthy's Sutri, a book I had already read not long before my first surgery. Now I read it two more times. I was not reading the same book. I was re-entering the same experience the same occult and visionary prose, the life of Sutri so urgently evoked. As rarely before, a book became tactile to me. When Sutri on his houseboat pulled a cord and brought up a bottle of orange soda pop from the cool river, I savored it. I could no longer taste. I tasted it more sharply than any soda I've ever really had. When Sutri stopped at the bus station for a grilled cheese, I ate it and the pickle and drank the black coffee. I began to live through this desperate man's sad life. And so like, you know, I don't know. I started reading that about Sutri and I was like, okay, I got, I got to go for it. Um, and to hear like something like that, that, that big of an impact on somebody's life, you know, and kind of reawakened him to like what art can do. I think that's pretty fascinating. Um, and then there's a couple of other, you know, quotes from Ebert. I'm going to get to in a minute because he's talking about um, more blood meridian and everything, but just, mm-hmm. yeah, Sutri, it's, it's that whole outsider. Um, I don't know if you ever read, there's a book called Ironweed that's by William Kennedy. Um, I've never read it. Yeah. In some ways it's, it's not the same book by any means, but it just reminds me where it's kind of looking at these, these people who are on the out, it kind of ties into what I was talking about earlier, those people who are on the, the outside of society and yet they still have this, very rich life. They have this culture, they have these relationships. Um, you know, so anyway, it's, it's really good. I would definitely say you should move it up your list. No, that sounds good. I I didn't know that I had never read that by Ebert. And so that's, um, that's definitely encouraging. And it sounds, it, it it sounds so different from the way I kind of, I guess I was imagining it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I mean, so, don't get me wrong. It's still McCarthy. So like there's plenty of darkness, <laughs> plenty of sadness, but I do think it has those moments in it that are very like kind of what I was just reading. There's a lot of life in it for sure. Yeah. Nice. Well, let's, um, let's move on to the fifth book and kind of, I think the culmination of, of where he'd been going up to that time, though, again, I haven't read Sutri, um, which sounds like it could also maybe be part of that, but um, Blood Meridian or The Evening Redness in the West. I know it's not maybe his most famous book because of, um, you know, The Road won the Pulitzer and was made into a movie and was fairly popular and, you know, Oprah uh, talking about it and things like that. And then you've got No Country for Old Men adapted by some of our most, uh, you know, adept uh, filmmakers and uh, won, won the Academy Award for Best Picture. So I wouldn't say it's his most popular, well-known book. But it was, at the time that I started reading him, like his masterpiece mm-hmm. and his, you know, the, the, the peak of his mountaintop, you right. know, his mountain range, the, the highest uh, of them all. And I think it deserves that reputation still, um, even though I don't know anybody else who's really read it in my own personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know of anybody that I would say, oh, Go and read this book in my personal life. Right, you know, it is a it is a tough book. Yeah, um, I myself started it three or four times, and I'd get to page fifty. And we've talked about this in other things where it's like oh, it's just not for me. It's not. No, I was really enjoying it, but it was terrifying. And it, I don't know if I've ever had that experience with a book before, where I stopped reading it because it was too intense. Yeah. It's I'll just usually go through them, you know, right. but this one did that to me a few times. No, it's haunting. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I remember the person I was working with a guy and it was when I was first starting to get into McCarthy, but I didn't know very much about him, which, you know, I'm, I'm like you, I kind of came in probably a little bit during the second half of his career for sure. And this guy was telling me about Blood Meridian. I mean, I knew about it, but he was describing it to me and he kind of just gazed off in the distance when he was describing it and it was like that it was like a Vietnam vet, like staring it you know, off into the distance and just thinking about like the horrors he's seen, but he was raving about it, but he had this look in his eyes and he was describing in particular, there's a scene with a dancing bear. That's just, you know, ugh, brutal. Um, and so anyway, yeah, it's, it's that whole idea of like, there's a greatness to it, but it's, yeah, it is absolutely haunting and dark. Um, there's another quote again from Ebert talking about, McCarthy. And I think it really makes, it reminds me of blood Meridian in particular, where he says the book's language is such that every page contains words you've never seen before. I've occasionally looked up some of them in the dictionary to find that in every case they were correctly used, but you don't need to know what they mean. Their shape and music do the job. And I love that. Like their shape and music do the job because he puts these words and sometimes they're words like you don't even know if it's a real word. And exactly what he just said, you can look it up in the dictionary and every time, yep, that makes total sense. It fits in perfectly. Last used in 1812. Right, you know? <laughs> exactly. But yeah, exactly what he just said. Like you could also just read through, never look it up and just, you you know what it means. Like, it, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's wonderful. So no, if someone came up and asked you, it, you wouldn't be able to tell them, but it sings the right notes mm-hmm. in your head and gets you through it. Yeah, it, it's and it starts that way on page one. Do you have it in front of you? I do not. Um, I, I don't. I don't either. Dang it! I oh, should wait. have pulled it Actually, out. Actually, here, let me grab it. I, I, it's over here. Yep. Are you wanting the very first? 
Like literally yeah, the just the, the the first few lines, um, mm-hmm. w- and how like cosmic and and biblical. Yeah, okay. um, this page is now. You, you you can read whatever you you want from it, but yeah, that that's what I was trying to, sure. to recall. Yeah, absolutely. I'll start. See the child. He is pale and thin. He wears a thin and ragged linen shirt. He stroke he stokes the scullery fire. Outside lie dark turned fields with rags of snow and darker woods beyond that harbor yet a few last wolves. His folk are known for hewers of wood and drawers of water, but in truth his father has been a schoolmaster. He lies in drink. He quotes from poets whose names are now lost. The boy crouches by the fire and watches him. Night of your birth, 33, the Leonids they were called. God, how the stars did fall. I looked for blackness, holes in the heavens, the dipper stove. The mother, dead these fourteen years, did incubate in her own bosom the creature who would carry her off. The father never speaks her name, the child does not know it. He has a sister in this world that he will not see again. He watches, pale and unwashed. He can neither read nor write, and in him broods already a taste for mindless violence. All history present in that visage, the child, the father of the man. Huh. Yeah, I, it's been probably a decade since I read that, but I remember mm-hmm. so much of that. It, it, the again, the hewers of wood and drawers of water, you uh, know, that biblical stuff. Yeah. The Leonids, the the or the Pleiades, the the shower, the the stars, um, mm-hmm. the the mom incubating, you know, her, her own, own demise. Death. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. So good. Well, I was um, Harold Bloom writes a lot about blood meridian and according to him Mm -hmm. the first two times he read it he basically threw it across the room because it was so dark and so violent but then he picked it up again and so i just wanted to read it real quickly what he said Um, by the way that's that's my harold bloom connection that that response the same Mm -hmm. i didn't throw it across the room but the darkness i read that after i finally finished it and i was like Ah, yeah. That, me and Harold, you exactly. know, we're, we're of a same. <laughs> that's, that's right. You're in good company. Yeah. So he writes, um, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian seems to me the authentic American apocalyptic novel, more relevant now than when it was written. The fulfilled renown of Moby Dick and As I Lay Dying is augmented by Blood Meridian, since Cormac McCarthy is the worthy disciple both of Melville and of Faulkner. I venture that no other living American novelist, not even Pynchon, has given us a book as strong and memorable as Blood Meridian, much as I appreciate his crime of Lot 49, Gravity's Rainbow, and Mason and Dixon. McCarthy himself has not matched Blood Meridian, but it is the ultimate Western, not to be surpassed. And so here's that part. He says, my concern being the reader, I will begin by confessing that my first two attempts to read through Blood Meridian failed because I flinched from the overwhelming carnage that McCarthy portrays. The violence begins on the novel's second page when the 15-year-old kid is shot in the back and just below the heart and continues almost with no respite until the end, 30 years later. When Judge Holden, the most frightening figure in all of American literature, I'm going to skip that part because there's a spoiler, um, but (laughs) he says, so appalling are the continuous massacres and mutilations of Blood Meridian that one could be reading a United Nations report on the horrors of Syria in 2019. Mm -hmm. There you go. That's the... That's the thing there is that that's the reality of it. Exactly. Sorry to interrupt. No, absolutely. No. And just one more quick part. He says, nevertheless, I urge the reader to persevere because blood meridian is a canonical imaginative achievement, both an American and a universal tragedy of blood. Judge Holden is a villain worthy of Shakespeare, 
Iago-like and demoniac, a theoret theoretician of war everlasting. And the book's magnificence, its language, landscape, persons, conceptions, at last transcends the violence and converts goriness into terrifying art, an art comparable to Melville's and to Faulkner's. When I teach the book, many of my students resisted initially, as I did. Television saturates us with actual as well as imagined violence, and I turn away either in shock or disgust. But anyway, so he's, he's saying like even now his students have that same reaction, that initial turning away, but then they're drawn back in. Um, I mean, I could go on this whole review. I would recommend anybody reads it on LitHub, um, at least the version that I found of Harold Bloom talking about Cormac McCarthy. But he really does sum it up so well of just that. The terrifying art is a great way to say it. We could do a whole, oh, yeah, a whole big series on Blood Meridian, uh, and and several of these. But but let's let's move on. Let's go on to his trilogy. The All the Pretty Horses begins the in 1992. The Border Trilogy uh, continued in The Crossing in 1994 and Cities of the Plain in 1998. Again, I've only read the first one, um, but. I really, really love this book. Mm -hmm. um, again, it, there's some beauty to it. The beauty to the prose in this one. It's quite different from the others. Yeah. Because it's actually, I don't know, beautiful yeah. at times, what they're describing. Like, not just like, oh, look at that blood, the way that it's, you know, blooms in the water to, you know, it's like, well, oh, that's really pretty description of violence. This is more like, this is a pretty description of something that I would, love to you know see yeah, myself exactly um and it begins the candle flame and the image of the candle flame caught in the pier glass twisted and righted when he entered the hall and again when he shut the door he took off his hat and came slowly forward the floorboards creaked under his boots in his black suit he stood in the dark glass where the lilies leaned so palely from their wasted cutless vase Along the cold hallway behind him hung the portraits of forebears only dimly known to him, all framed in glass and dimly lit above the narrow wainscoting. He looked down at the guttered candle, candle stub. He pressed his thumbprint in the warm... Uh, I think I've got a typo here. He pressed his thumbprint in the warm... Uh, was pulled on the oak veneer. I'm missing some words there. Sorry. Oh, no. Lastly, he looked at the face so caved and drawn among the folds of funeral cloth the yellowed mustache, the eyelids paper thin. That was not sleeping. That was not sleeping. Uh, you know, you're reading this and it's like, oh, this looks like a lovely, nice scene. Is he walking into his home in the evening? No, it's there's a, 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 a death. Mm -hmm. And this is how the, the book begins. And this is, this is a... Um, uh, a western you know it does go back in time to the the old west but mm -hmm. but yeah that you know again really really love the the the, the book really love the lullaby it's based on <laughs> the song. um but uh but again stopped with that one didn't read the the next two yeah. so no it's funny go ahead. no i mean i i jotted down that exact same passage because i remember reading that and i don't remember the order that i read this in with the other ones but it was somewhere in that first initial surge of like you know, this guy's, uh -huh. this guy's great. I'm going to read everything. Um, but yeah, that same passage, like what a way to start off a book. So gorgeous. And like you said, this one, it has many connections to his other stuff, but it definitely has its own feeling. Like you said, there's a, there's a beauty to it. And, you know, there's a redemption or some salvation narratives that run yeah. through it that are very 
different than a lot of the other stuff that there's he's a done. love story yeah are there love stories in any maybe in Sutri because I haven't read it but I I mean <sighs> I'm trying to remember the others are all really diabolical love stories if you consider them love stories at right. all that I can remember although I would argue when we get to it that the road actually has some some connections there where there's the love story between the the, the man and his son and and a lot of that okay. redemption um, and beauty in that one but yeah for the most part this is not something that comes up a lot in his themes within his work. But to your point, I mean, Mm -hmm. one one of the things that really blew me away about the whole border trilogy is the landscape. I mean, that's true in blood Meridian and many of the other ones, but this one has just some of the most beautiful passages about that. And it, I don't know if this is a, an accurate pairing, but in my head, I, I tend to connect the border trilogy with lonesome dove because I think there's like this kind of epic kind of journey that you're following these characters through and, you know, it, it I don't know, it, it captures the old West, but it does it through the eyes of these young men who are living in this really harsh place, but this really beautiful place. And I don't know, there's so much sorrow and humor and all these different things going on within it. So yeah, just talking about this one, if I was going to reread, which I am, I'm going to reread a lot of these, but I think this trilogy might be the one that I pick up again, that or Sutri to, re- to reread. Um, yeah, it's so good. And this, maybe the his first brush with uh, popularity, it was made into a film mm-hmm. in 2000. So even before No Country for Old Men was published and The Road, you know, and it starred like Matt Damon and Penelope Cruz. I never saw it. Did you see I the did not. film? I've not heard great things. Um, I don't know. It may, it may be fine, but it's not one that really appeals to me. It's one of those where, similar to Lonesome Dove again, I think, is where I've I love the book so much that I don't really want to even mess with like the images in my head, you know? So I have no desire to see that one. I have to say. Even though Lonesome Dove's adaptation is I know. beautiful. I know. I've, so anyway. I've been tempted, but I don't know. Yeah. You know, stick to your guns yeah. if, 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 until the day you decide not to on your own. Lonesome Dove <laughs> might be one of my most perfect reading experiences. So I'm just, it's so, I don't know how fragile it is, but I'm afraid to find out. <laughs> well, so I think at this time, there is some criticism that McCarthy's starting to maybe not want to eat beans anymore. Yeah. And that he is starting to try to write a popular epic, Mm -hmm. something that will do well, something that can be adapted into Hollywood. And then comes No Country for Old Men in 2005, which he did write as a screenplay Mm -hmm. originally. And I think it has that pacing. It does. I still love it, but I, I know people criticize it as being you know, a a screenplay in novel form Mm -hmm. and some of the deficiencies you might expect from that. Uh, And I don't know, I guess I'm, this is where maybe the opposite is true for me, where I'm glad the book exists and that could be adapted into the film because I think the film is one of those perfect viewing experiences for me. Yeah. Um, And I think the story is still really good. And I like the way that he flouts convention. Um, We don't need to necessarily spoil it, but there are a lot of people who read this and are just ticked off mm-hmm. at the way that it ends. And I think that's part of his point and, and I'm glad he made it, you know, um, but love the story, love the villain, Anton Chicker, mm-hmm. um, love the setting. And again, this one is so difficult for me to talk about as a book because it's a movie now. And, and I think it was perfected in its, um, the way that it should be told in that rather than in the book McCarthy wrote. But of course, all credit to him for putting it out there and, and making it into something that could be so like almost directly adapted to the screen. Yeah. 
Um, no, I um, one of the things I like about it is there's those passages that kick off. I don't know if it's every chapter. I think it is every chapter where it's kind of like these, it, it's like the internal thoughts of, of the narrator and they're very poetical and very different. Yeah. Cause a lot of this is, is very, not an airport novel. I don't mean it in any means by that, but very plot driven, unlike most of his other stuff, mm-hmm. you know, you're following this, this whole heist and, and everything that goes with it. But I think it's fascinating that it's interspersed with these kind of introspective thoughts. Ed- the sheriff, Ed Tom Bell, mm-hmm. the one who's kind of recognizing, I don't know what kind of world I live in. Yeah, um, exactly. And I don't know if I'm leaving it in a better place than when I entered it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are lovely. Yeah. No. So yeah, like I said, it's, I mean, I love it. It's, I understand the criticisms. I mean, I'm, I don't think they're necessarily, I don't, I don't agree with them necessarily. But I do see where they're saying where he it was definitely a change in style for McCarthy, um, you know, and I could see how people would think it was maybe a little bit of a, a money grab or more of a commercial turn. But at the same time, somebody as talented as McCarthy, like we said, like when he does it, he does it right. And so, yeah, it's it's well, very good. And who would have ever thought that this would be a commercial vehicle? That too. Yeah, because it isn't. I mean, the story is not. I mean, it, it's a thriller. And so maybe that element and maybe some of the style, you know, it's, it's not as it's, there, there are those poetic moments mm-hmm. um, from the sheriff, but it's not blood Meridian, right. but he's not writing taken or, you know, right. a thriller where, where it's going to end in all glory. I mean, he's, it, 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 I would never as a publisher be like, Oh, this is sure to be a bestseller. Very, you know, pleasing to the audience. Yeah, It's not a beach read. Definitely going to be recommended word of mouth, you know, no, no. people are going to be ticked off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I think it's part of it is somebody like McCarthy has, it's kind of that whole fanboy thing where people are so passionate and, you know, he, he tends to divide opinion so strongly that those people who choose to love him go all in but then mm-hmm. along with that comes when he does something new that doesn't always go over well with those people who are all in on whatever he's done before. And mm-hmm. so I do think that's definitely a lot of this kind of that the pushback from people who, you know, have fought those battles about how great, you know, blood Meridian is in the face of all this opposition or whatever. And then he does this and it's kind of like, Oh wait, that's completely different than everything that I've always, you know, defended <laughs> or whatever. So I think there's some of that too. That could be. Maybe maybe we came at it at the right time then where this was kind of, a, it sounds like maybe for both of mm-hmm. us, among the first uh, experiences with him. Um, and then you get into some of those other other uh, styles and richness. Yeah. Well, I know I know you we're, we're getting short on time, but we've got one more to talk about. The Road came out in 2006. I read it that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember um, the day that the Pulitzer was announced in, you know, April of 2007, I remember sitting there and kind of thinking, I hope it's the road. Yeah. I hope they give the Pulitzer to the road this year. I, you know, I, and I've never done that before and I've never really done it since where I have a book in mind that I care about what wins the Pulitzer. Um, but I was wanting him to, to win it again. I was in the midst of like reading a whole bunch of his stuff and I just thought it was the, the right decision and didn't ever think it would actually happen though. I mean, this is, this is, uh, not necessarily what you think of as a Pulitzer kind right. of novel, but it won. And um, 
and it's his last book so far. So far. Um, but I, I did really like this book and I liked the human humanity amidst all of the gloom. It's almost the opposite in a way. Not Maybe that's unfair, but where in the other ones you get all the gloom amid the humanity and all the violence and brutality that almost stamps it out. Mm-hmm. In this one, you get, no, there's, there's a bud here and it, it can, it can go on at, even with these atrocities, very violent and um, again, you know, fairly disturbing things that are going on in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, there's uh, the love story, as you said, you know, father, son love oh, yeah. in, in this case that really carries it through. Yeah. I think it's absolutely touching. Um, I, you know, my understanding is that he wrote this shortly after the birth of his son, who I think when his son was born, Cormac McCarthy was in his sixties or maybe even his seventies when his son was born. And you can kind of feel that there's something to that. Like, I mean, it's definitely, it's just such a sweet relationship amidst this terrible stuff. And it's not, it's not saccharine. It's, I mean, a lot of their dialogue is one or two words at a time, but you can just Mm -hmm. tell, I don't know. It just felt very real to me. You know, his father is going through, you know, his wife has killed herself because she couldn't face this new world they live in. He is taking this kid and just trying to protect him against, you know, roving bands of cannibals and all these terrible things that are going on. And yet there somehow it manages to have this like just pureness to their relationship that I think was just very well done. Um, and just not getting into a spoiler, but even the end, the way it's left is there's, there's a hope there that I don't think I've found in any of his other works. Well, let me throw something out there. So McCarthy had his, you know, newborn son mm-hmm. I think you and I did too mm-hmm. at around the same time when we were reading these. In fact, I in my um in in my review that I put on my my site, this is the first thing I brought up was the father son relationship. And the first sentences of the book says, "When he awoke in the woods in the dark and the cold of night, he'd reached out to touch the child sleeping beside him. Nights dark beyond darkness, and the days more gray each one than what had gone before." like the onset of some cold glaucoma dimming away the world. His hand rose and fell softly with each precious breath. Mm. And in my review, I was being a little quiet, but that is not sentimental. That is not sentimental. Just, you know, calling back to all the pretty horses yeah, and stuff. Yeah. But, but I mean, how many times did, did I do that when, with my newborns, you know, go and are they okay? And put your hand on them and feel their breath mm. coming in and out. And, and here's this horrific world and an older son, you know, this is not a newborn child in, in the, in the, in the road, but, um, but yeah, that definitely is one of the reasons why this one I'm sure struck me so strongly is that, you know, I was a new father. Yeah. Um, and there we are. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. I, I hadn't made that conscious connection, but yeah, it came out in 2006. My first son was born in a year before. So yeah, yeah no doubt about two, it. 2004. Well, no, my son was born in 2006, so yeah. I must have read this shortly after his birth, um, before it won the Pulitzer, and my son was born in December of 2006, so it was yeah. like brand new experience for me. No, and it, it, you're exactly right, because that's the thing is, you know, bringing children up, I'm sure this has always been the case, I mean, during wars and everything, but like everything going on these days with global warming and you know, political situations and all that stuff. Like there are those moments as a parent, I don't know if you have them, but I do where it's like, you know, you bring them up and you're very, they're, you're very happy there in your life, but you have those moments, even if it's just for a second where it's like the world is such a harsh place in some ways. 
and that thing of, you know, you're not going to be able to protect them in all the ways you'd like to. So mm -hmm. I think absolutely the road is just maybe that times, you know, a thousand, but it, it captures all of that so well. Um, you know, since we keep quoting different passages, I mean, throughout that entire book, the, the landscapes are barren, there's ash falling from the sky, you know, it's just, there's not a sign of life other than them. And a few, like I said, kind of roving bands of cannibals or people who are out there doing no good. But the very last paragraph of that book to me was one of the most stunning things I've ever read. And I was just going to read it real fast. Um, once there were brook, sorry, I'll start over. Once there were brook trout in the streams in the mountains. You could see them standing in the amber current where the white edges of their fins wimpled softly in the flow. They smelled of moss in your hand, polished and muscular and torsional. On their backs were vermiculate patterns that were maps of the world and its becoming, maps and mazes of a thing which could not be put back, not be made right again. In the deep glens where they lived, all things were older than man, and they hummed of mystery. Like, whew. Every time I read that, I mean, just by itself, it's stunningly gorgeous, but as kind of like the capstone of that entire book, I mean, I don't know. That was one of those passages, I speaking again of, of those memories that I have. I remember where I was when I read it. I remember closing the book and just sitting there kind of stunned. To me, that's just yeah, I, top, top, top McCarthy. I remember talking about the last paragraph with several people around that time, you know, neighbors, my wife read the book and, and really enjoyed it. Uh, our sister-in-law read it and hated it and then read it again and loved it. So, <laughs> and talking about that last paragraph and what it's saying about everything that came before. Um, you know, there's a lot more I think we, we could do with this, with this, but I know time is, is, is up and um, would like to stick with that to the best of our ability. Um, but this has made me excited to get back to him. I may, I may try and pull down Sutri this year and, and get back to it because these are special experiences. You kind of talked about, you remember where you are. I mean, it's one thing to say, Oh, here's McCarthy and here's my, you know, uh, here's what I think of every book, but to remember those moments of sitting down and reading them and the, for the first time and where we were in life, that's kind of made me reflective and think that it's time to, to get back to it a little bit. Yeah. You're, you're, what you have in store for your Cormac McCarthy reading is not, I think as pleasant as what I have in <laughs> store with the end of the border trilogy and Sutri. But right. <laughs> well, I will say though, I mean, I've read several of these tw twice now I've read blood reading twice. I've read no country for old men twice. And um, I, I, maybe that's it, but I, I would happily go back now and, and start from the beginning and read them all. Cause he is just for me, a foundational author. And I, you know, I don't know. I don't think I can get enough. I could see revisiting him, you know, in my seventies, eighties, whatever, because I just think he's one of those you return to and probably get different things out of it every time you read it. Yeah. And, and I think there are some valid criticisms to an extent too, if they, if they resonate with you. I mean, there is the, the language, mm -hmm. the, the barrier there um, that can be a turnoff for people. And I get that. Um, there's the brutality of the violence. There's the masculinity there's the absence of feminine femininity right. um, and of women in general, I think from these books that, that, you know, I mean, other than the, the, the romance in all the pretty horses and the, the mom and wife in the road, I guess we have the wife in no country for old men as well, but you know, they're, they're kind of on the side. Mm -hmm. She becomes a better character in the, in the movie. Right. For sure. <laughs> um, uh, but 
you know, those are, I think, valid things to, to contend with. So we're not trying to say he is the end all be all and everybody should revere him and what he's done. But I think again, for us personally, there've been some meaningful experiences and, and, um, and I'm glad for him and look forward to some more. Absolutely. So. <laughs> for sure. All right. Well, Paul, um, let's just recommend this week. Okay. If, unless you, you, you've got something you, you really want to, but that people, you know, uh, maybe go out and pick up a Court McCarthy book if they haven't yet, or, um, something like that. Uh, yeah, and uh, maybe save save any other recommendation you might have for the next episode. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, I would. Yeah, I, absolutely. I would say go out and read Cormac McCarthy. Maybe don't start with Blood Meridian, but uh, if you haven't <laughs> read it, I mean, I think Sutri or The Road would be great places to start. Um, and I will just add a quick recommendation that's kind of related. One of the mm-hmm. things that I struggled with when I was reading the Border Trilogy is there are pages and pages of untranslated Spanish. And so I remember sitting there with my phone and I would have Google translate out and I would be sitting there typing, you know, it, it for hours, <laughs> not hours, minutes. Um, and that ties into something that I was going to recommend anyways, where Go ahead, I just recently stumbled upon Google translate um, has this option where you can through your camera, take, point, point your camera at the screen and it will translate anything onto your phone you know, you, you, you pick like Spanish to English or French to English or German to English. And it's come in handy when I'm reading the road or the magic mountain also. So it's through Google translate. And then you click on the option to, to use your camera. And so you'll hold it up to your page and it will literally just translate everything for you. So it does tie into the border trilogy a little bit. That's my, nice. that's my somewhat nice. awkward seg- segue. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you threw that in there. Cause I did not know about that. Yeah. And if, uh, yeah, it's a game changer. That's great. I hate that term, but it's true. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Paul. You have a good one. All right. We'll talk Me with too. you soon on episode six. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.